Listener Production. Okay, are you recording? Hello and welcome along to episode 68 of the Howie Games Part A. Thanks for giving the show a go. This week's episode is actually coming to you from Zimbabwe, namely Victoria Falls, where the Howie Games is having a bit of a spell. Be fair to say, the people of Zimbabwe are having a really tough time of it at the moment due to the country's political situation. Hopefully, hopefully things get better very, very soon because this is an amazing country full of beautiful, beautiful people. So if you ever get the chance, please check it out. Now, this week's episode features the 1983 and 84 world surfing champion and three-time pipe master, the superstar Tom Carroll. Tom was a champion in a very, very different time. Boards were big, shorts were small, fluoro was cool, and Hawaii might as well have been on another planet. Everything, I mean everything, was way over the top. The Banzai Pipeline Surfing Masters, where every ride is an adventure into the unknown, pursuing that perfect wave. For those who challenge and conquer these roaring waves, there is no greater satisfaction. For to a surfer, this is the ultimate test. This is the Banzai Pipeline. Tom's is a story of extremes, from a quiet life to a crazy life, from a couple of bucks to a million bucks, from pain to joy and back again, and from dabbling to addiction and then getting clean. There are quite a few drug references in this episode, but all in all, parents, Tom in no way, shape or form glorifies taking drugs. Quite the opposite. He's brutally honest about substance abuse and the terrible, terrible impact it once had on his life. So I think especially if you listen to it with your kids, it'll be okay. So you search and try to find, but you don't know where to go. So many thoughts flood through your mind. You're confused and want to know Mystery, what is to be? So much more than meets the eye Listen to me, time is your key You will find out by and by These days, Tom is 10 years clean and sober He is fit, firing and still pushing the surfing boundaries He exudes energy He is like the ultimate energizer bunny Who has inspired many, many people with his story And what a story it is Tom's book titled TC, Tom Carroll, written by his brother Nick Carroll. It is like few sports books I've read. It is phenomenal, beautifully written and achingly honest. Check it out, TC, Tom Carroll. Enjoy, Thomas Victor Carroll. So when you search and then you find And know just where to go And thoughts that once used to cloud your mind You see clearly and now you know Mystery, what is to be revealed in King Selassie? Come on, children, try it with me. We want to reach Mount Zion. Tom Carroll, welcome to the Howie Games. I always say I'm excited at this point when I get to sit across from people, but to sit with you, I obviously <laughs> love to surf, to sit with a two time world surf champion in this amazing place you live. I've been chasing mm. you around the world a bit, so I'm really happy to sit down and have a chat with you. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure. How are you? We are in uh, Avalon. I've never been to Avalon. Northern Beaches. Mm. Wow, how did I not know about this place? Yeah. Oh, no, this, this is a little... Well, it's not really a secret, uh, but it's... You know, I call it the bubble because people get stuck in the bubble. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, if you, you, you would get stuck here if you... 
could, I guess, um, because it's got so, it's got pretty much everything you need um, to survive a very healthy, good life. It's like and, a little uh, subtropical hideaway, mm, and we're mm. we, you know we're I've just came in an Uber. We're fifty minutes mm. from Centrepoint Tower. You couldn't be further away. That's right. No, it's pretty nice, huh? And uh, but I, I definitely feel the need to get out. Right. Like I've got to get out. You know, I'm thankful that you know I've grown. I was lucky enough to be born. I mean, just think about how lucky you are just to be born in Australia. Just, just for the start. Right? Mm. Just think about how lucky we are to be born in Australia. But then get to be born on the northern beaches of Sydney. <laughs> It was um, that's a stroke a huge amount of luck right there, you know. Yeah, my just word. to be born in uh, into Newport Beach, which is just around the corner, and uh, Avalon's just a little bit further north uh, up the up the beaches, uh, and I just uh, ended up up here just by kind of default, really. Yeah. Normally, mm. at this point, I ask you what you're up to now, but since you've talked about you were born around here, so so what mm. what are your first memories? What are your mum and dad all about? Okay, uh, my mother was uh, well. I, I've my mother was a she was a nurse on the ships, uh, and she was a nurse from she was from the UK. Mm-hmm. And my father is a, was is is was a journalist um, with the Fairfax Group. And of great renown. Becoming, of great renown. Uh, your dad. He becoming he ended up becoming um, the editor in chief of Sydney Morning Herald. A bit of a legend. That's one of my cats. That's Angel. Hello, Angel. Angel. <laughs> uh, she's very, very social. She's very affectionate. Yeah, the male is not as social, but right. he's he's he loves human contact. <laughs> but they both do. But she's super social. But um, yeah, so but I, I, I lost my mum when when I was about seven, and uh, to cancer, and um, but my father's still alive. He's ninety three, and. And he's just ticking, alo- ticking over and he lives over there in Parsley Bay on uh, on the south side, actually. Right. And still drives around, you know, goes for a swim and has his little workouts. And What have you taken from your dad? If you've taken a couple of things from your old man that you've tried to abide by, what would they be, Tom? He used to see me running around the place with a, like I have, you know, like a chook with his head cut off. Because I was like that. I was just such a... Energetic, still pretty energetic, but very energetic. Just jumping around, running around the house a thousand miles an hour with just a single um, sort of kid. <laughs> and um, and he used to say, "Whoa, whoa, steady on, Tom. Slow and steady wins the race." Now, for someone running around the house and to hear, hear your father say, "Slow and steady wins the race," it used to bug bug me big time. But down the track, as I got uh, further and further into what I was driven to do. Um, and get really good at was surfing and, and competition surfing in particular and just get really good at what I was doing. Slow and steady wins the race got more and more prominent in in that kind of, on that path, horses on that path because it would become more and more evident that I'd, that being slow and steady, uh, I could actually see clearly what I was doing and what I could learn from. Mm. Whereas if I was running a thousand miles an hour, I couldn't see. I couldn't. Didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> Everything was a blur. <laughs> so that that my takeaway from my father was definitely uh, slow and steady wins the race. Yeah. So that that's a big one for me. And I think that you know my father's just been super steady and super solid and given me a great great example of 
how to be a father, really, and, and back up as a father. Talk about being a father, and you, you, you've got beautiful family and beautiful mm. kids, which mm. I'm sure we'll touch on, but mm. when you talked about your mum, mm. I, I have an eight-year-old and a six-year-old. You, you were telling me you were seven. Yeah. One, I can't imagine me as a dad all of a sudden mm. trying to raise my yeah. kids without mm. my wife, mm. and I can't imagine the effect that that would have on them if their mum was taken from them now. But mm. oh, it's, it's quite sad to think about. Well, it definitely leaves. Um, it's, I was six when my f- mother was was probably well. She was diagnosed with cancer, and she was her health was declining. So I didn't really have my mother through six, and then I left, lost her at seven. Okay. So I think at that time I came to understand down the track uh, that the brain really isn't fully developed. And, you know, you didn't really have the, um, the emotional maturity or understanding to know what was really happening at the time and to sort of take that information in uh, that you know, your mother's dying and, and wow. really understand what that really meant. It, it, to me, it's very, very, it was very tricky to understand that and what that meant. Whereas my oldest brother, who was two and a half years older than me, and my oldest sister, who was five years older than me, really understood it. Their brain, you know, was fully kind of intact and um, wired up, uh, wired up emotionally. And so they they were when my father came into the house. I'll never forget him coming into the house in the evening and saying, "Oh, look, your mother's just passed away." Da da da. And, and they they cried, uh, and I didn't. I didn't. Okay, so what, what, you know, like I couldn't, what do I do here? I was the one that was separated from that and felt separate. Um, so it was a very tricky space, which I realised down the track, I was just wasn't old enough to understand what was going on. Now, kind of having that kind of, sep- uh, that loss happen during that time of development, uh, I now know that creates a really... A tricky place, you know, like in especially when coming in relationship with with women, in particular. You in know, what like, way? Um, well, it's kind of like an un, unknown kind of fear. It's kind of like this unrealized and unknown, un, and, and just like trying to go to a place to understand it. It's just like it's just I just can't get there. <laughs> like so, just mm. let it be and and allow the healing to happen in other ways. And and no doubt about it. Um, you know, trying to find answers for that uh, as a youngster, you know, the f- coolest thing when I realised what went on there, uh, that there was absolutely nothing out of place, that my last beautiful memory of my mother uh, was the Christmas before she left uh, and that was she she gave me a surfboard. Huh. So... So, so there was nothing out of place. She actually gave me the surfboard that was to hold me from to this day. So she <laughs> gave you the gift that shaped your entire life, there lifestyle, you go. everything. Yeah. Wow, isn't that incredible? Yeah, it is. And so, if, but but I mean, many many years of just struggling trying to figure it out, you know, like or or going into some pain or a lot of pain around, especially relationship with women, in particular, fear about women. I like it's just incredible. Just first default. It's just like I'm just scared of women, like period, uh, of them leaving. So right. you know, so it's like a. I'm not. I love women. I love my daughters. I love interaction with women. I, I think 
yeah, I've got a deep um, respect for women. I've got all that. But it's actually in that really close quarters where we're giving a, every part of myself to them, it gets really tricky. Because you think they're going to yeah. disappear like yeah. your mum. Yeah, there's some right. sort of unknown place where I can't get to to, to actually... It's a very tricky place. Would you like to be able to get to that place? Oh, it'd be awesome. Right. Yeah. So it'd be amazing, probably. I'm like, because then all of a sudden there's maybe another part of my, maybe that's that, that's going to happen. I don't know. But it's like one of those things that's got to be peeled off, peeled off, peeled off, keep peeling that off. Could you get then, there on your own, do you think? Or you um, need some help to do it? I need help to okay. do that. I don't think it's, there's no way, no, no, I need actually that other person to be there. Yeah. And they've been there and it's slowly peeling off. And the cool thing is I've got three daughters as well, which are just, just staring me in the face. Karma's yeah. like, a funny thing. Yeah, it's come to it. They're just right there with me, you know. <laughs> I kept uh, staring yeah. and you rolling yeah. around the mic as we speak. So your mum gave you your first surfboard? Mm. What type of stick was it? It was like a foam uh, cool light surfboard. <laughs> and, uh, you know, um, there was a rumour going round the house, you know, before that Christmas came up. That there was a surfboard going to come, you know, into in the, in the, the gift package or something. There was a surfboard coming. Is that what you wanted? And I, well, I, I thought it was going to be my brother's because he ah. always got the, I always got the hand me downs. Of course. And you know, like it was my oldest brother that got the this sort of thing, and so I didn't. I did uh, think I was the one that was going to get the surfboard. Uh, but you know, Christmas morning comes, we walk into the bedroom. You know, my mum, you know, who's bed. Pretty much bedridden at that point. Uh, she was lying in the bed, and we're there, and uh, and and Nick got books because Nick read. Nick this is your read, brother. This is my brother. He reads books like he was reading by then. He was reading uh, books from Tommy. Was five years old, so he he's a big big reader. And um, and I was outside up a tree, an active guy, you know, like always outside up a tree. Slow and so, steady, Tom. Yeah, slow, slow and steady. steady wins the race. <laughs> Super active. ADHD. I don't know. You probably diagnose me as that, but whatever. And I'm like, and I just knew that that circle was somewhere in the room, and it was going to be mine before it even appeared. And then Mum pulls out the board from underneath the bed and. And I just go, oh, my God, look at that thing. I was just, like, lit up like a Christmas tree. So but, when, I, you but know. When did you first get on it? And I got, you know, I got, Dad took me down to the beach and we didn't know we had to wax it up. And so I was just slipping off the thing. <laughs> and, and I'm like, we didn't know anything. And, I, and a wave would come through and I'd just throw it. Because I the board. the yeah, I was going, what do I do with this? I'm just slipping off it and they just throw it. So it was, it was kind of, you know, I didn't know what I was doing at first. But slowly but surely, you know, things kind of started to fall in place. And I'll never forget that first time I stood up on it. I was coming into the shore break in front of the surf club at Newport Beach on this little wave, probably tiny little foamy wave. And I stood up and I rode it all the way to the sand. And, and I said, Dad, who was just standing there with my sister, and... I said, Dad, I just I stood up for a minute. You know, it felt like a minute. Oh, my God. Put every bit of concentration into a minute? everything I had. And he goes, Dad. Dad goes, no, it was more like a second. <laughs> and, and, you know, I was like, oh, gosh. You know, like, really? A second? No. You know? So I think at that point, uh, you know, we, we ended up moving closer to the water. 
uh, after that, um, my mum passed. There was only two lanes you can you to come here. You came along a road that had three lanes either way, above uh, Bungan Beach. Mm-hmm. We lived above Bungan Beach, and there was only two lane, one lane either way then. And then our house, which was on the main road, was bought by the main roads. My father ah. sold it because it was going to take up three lanes and take our whole front yard out. And so we moved down closer into the village of Newport and that meant that I could ride a bike to the beach. And Freedom. that changed everything. And the beach was easy access early morning before school and then, you know, it's... After school, I was out in the ocean as well. Why? What was it about it that grabbed a young Tom so much that it's become not part of your life, it's become your life, I guess? Like, yeah. looking around at your place here, there's mm. it's just surf and photos and books about the water, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's what it's about. I think with, uh, for me, um, the, the water was, uh, the ocean was a place that, uh, intrigued my visual senses and I think uh, and physically I was just made for you know challenging you know like I loved the challenge physically I was just a physical uh, visual I was a visual learner physical interaction guy so uh, and my body was just made for it it just seemed to be seemed to fit what was going on <laughs> in the activity of surfing I tried team sport you know I, I played rugby my father put me in a Newport Breakers rugby team uh, at a young age and, and I just tried to run the field with his big old boots on and I used to get beat up on the field and I was just this little guy playing halfback um, in the rugby team and that was a tricky game. I always wanted to play rugby league but I, I had to play rugby union and I used to get smashed and and I played for a number of years and, and I just at the end of the game I'd, I just looked down to the beach and... I, I couldn't surf after it too at the end right. because it was so sore. I was going, and, and our team wasn't that good. <laughs> so I'd just go, my 5'8 was really good, but the rest of the team, you know, like we get a bit of forward movement and then my 5'8 would give up on me, He'd just start throwing the ball. I go, what are you doing? He goes, oh, it's hopeless, you know. I go, don't give up. I knew at that point there was something in me that didn't like to give up. I really didn't like to give up. I didn't care how far behind I was, I wouldn't give up. Uh, <laughs> and I was kind of futile. He just goes, futile, you know, look at this team. And, uh, but the team sport thing, I'd get out into the surf and I'd kind of feel like I could kind of take, con- take control of this space myself and, and it was all up to me to deal with it. Yeah, and uh, and and that felt really good for me. And, and that space for every, mm. for one Ricky Ponting that we've talked to on this podcast that could just walk out and bat and was just naturally brilliant at it. There's mm. a thousand Anamirs and John Aloisi's that weren't even their best in their family at their chosen sport. Yeah. Were you that kid that was, wow, he is just made to do this, or did you have to work for it? Uh, and there's no time for modesty if you were that that <laughs> child that it was yeah. just. Well, uh, in in the group, in my at the beach, and in, in my group friends and stuff, I definitely had uh, had some gifts that were above the other guys, mm-hmm. and it was noticeable. And 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 you know, like there was opportunities that came to me and and offered me and I, and things that I wasn't wasn't quite ready for competition and so on. I 
Uh, I was offered to go to competitions and then I just wasn't ready for competition at a younger age, uh, around about 11, 12. I was, I was offered to go to competition uh, and, and I just, within myself, I wasn't ready. But uh, I was chosen, you know, I was offered sort of, I guess, windows of opportunity to go and compete. And uh, eventually I started taking those opportunities up and I got sort of lured in through recognition and results that were just coming. I was just going, well, I can keep getting through to the final and mm. I'd be in the final, I'd get a good result or I'd get a win and I'd go, oh, you know, and I, I just think all that sort of stuff, uh, for a while it just, it just came in a flood around about mid-teens uh, from about 13, 14, 15, 16 things really kind of flooded in on me. Uh, and the next minute I was given, um, you know, well, I won the first pro junior event, uh, which is a junior event where there was money given out. What did you win for? What was the $500. Was that when the I was world 15, That was in the world pro junior So, event. But 500 bucks to you, was that holy moly or was that Yeah, only? that was big. Right. Yeah, 500 bucks at 15. What did you do with it? 1977. Um, good question, I don't know. <laughs> I probably just, uh, you know, I wasn't, I wasn't a big spender. Um, you know, I never really have been, but um, he, uh, I, I think I, I think I actually saved up to get to Hawaii. Okay. Um, at that time, I was looking. My first trip to Hawaii was in when I was 16 years old. That was the following year, and uh, I was putting money away to get to Hawaii. And uh, that was that was a huge goal of mine to go and surf Hawaii. So you, you went to Hawaii as a sixteen-year-old, and mm. we got to remember, Tom. This is what nineteen seventy uh, late late in seventy-eight when I first went to Hawaii. So in surfing, late October. It wasn't really mm. professional then. It's not like people were making careers out of it, and I'm, mm. it's not like we can just turn on the telly and watch the surfing from there. Then I'm sure you had to build up in your head. What was it mm. like as a sixteen-year-old from the northern beaches, which is a pretty sheltered spot yes and, and you're in hawaii was it the hardcore the way they talk about it and what was it welcoming and well not in the 70s it wasn't very welcoming to well particularly that that year 1978 it was just after a time when um a lot of you know the dream of professional surfing was coming in big mm-hmm. uh it was just the dream and people were doing all sorts of things in order to get their point across about that and who was the dominant ones and and so on. So it was a it was a wild ride. Heavy. And yeah, it was pretty. It wasn't, you know, for a freckly kind of kid from Australia to be there. It was a tricky place to be in. It, it, like physically in, tricky, as in physically getting threatened in the water. Uh, or I was all right. Uh, you know, I was just this little kid, but it wasn't a friendly place to be. Okay. You know, it definitely wasn't a friendly place to surf. I loved the waves, though. I just absolutely loved the waves. And I had a couple of... I had a Hawaiian friend by the name of Louis Ferreira and and he was, you know, and he he sort of took me under his wing in a way or just befriended me and stayed that way. And he was a really lovely guy. Um, and uh, we just hit it off. And he came and stayed at my house in Australia when he came to compete in Australia and um, 
He's a, he's a great guy. Still in good co- in contact with him today. How's a sixteen-year-old that, that's trying mm. to surf the big mm. waves with not much money behind him? Mm. How, how's he living in Hawaii in nineteen seventy? How are you getting by? What are you eating? Like, what? How are you operating? <laughs> I'm sure it's pretty close to the ground, Tommy. <laughs> Real close. So <laughs> I was there. Luckily enough, I was I was taken under the wing of uh, Simon Anderson, who'd okay. been there. He's the developed, he developed the thruster, the thruster. and um, uh, he shaped me a couple of boards and. I stayed with Simon Anderson, uh, Al Hunt, who was working with the surfing organisation at that point, being a judge. Mm -hmm. And there was another, Greg Hodges, who was running the New South Wales Surfing Association at that time. So we lived in a condominium at um, the Kui Lima Estate at the, where now is the Turtle Bay Mm. uh, Resort. Uh, And we stayed there, I stayed there for about two months. I turned 17 that year in Hawaii and uh, got to see my heroes surfing pipeline and just the whole feeling of just a dream of being on the North Shore and I'd just, I'd saved up enough money uh, to last me that time. You know, I had to sort of, you know, budget my way through it. I'll never forget being, there was only one supermarket uh, and that was fair drive away from where we were staying. A place called Halle Eva, and and if I wasn't the way those guys would work with the, if if I if I didn't get come out of the supermarket on time, I'd miss the lift back to come in and have to get on the bus. <laughs> if I didn't get out of the surf on time, I'd have to you know well, or went with them you know. Yeah. If I weren't you know I was just a grommet, and so I was just like. It was got pretty tricky, but it was they were really they were wonderful. Really, they. They did um, give me some space and, um, to some degree, you know, really look out for me and uh, uh, during tricky times. But, uh, you know, I lived somehow on um, cereal and uh, the odd steak. I was like, it was pretty, and and the Kui Lima buffet. (laughs) The buffet. Uh, Yeah, yeah. Friend to all with not much money. $5.99 buffet. (laughs) $5.99 was a lot of money. Yeah. $5.99. All you can eat buffet um, of an evening. Back to Tom in a moment. Next up on the Howie Games, a true superstar who, for various reasons, I cannot name at the moment, but it is going to be good. Okay, back to Tom. I'm sure you had to have other jobs along the way. I, were you thinking at this stage, I want to be a professional surfer, of which, as you said, it was a unusual term at that stage, professional surfer. Did you have a plan B and C for life or not really? Uh, well, I just uh, started my first year as an apprenticeship uh, in um, panel beating. So I was working on cars. I... I, I, I wanted to leave at year 10 because um, I, I, I wanted a career in... I wanted to be free to be able to compete. And going on to year 11 and 12, it just didn't didn't make sense. So um, uh, I wanted to s- stick it out and, um, and compete. There was no... There was no clear path for us... No. Uh, ..to be a professional surfer. It was just a wing and a prayer. Really, and huh. uh, but there was this kind of dream happening. It was actually unfolding. There was events. There was some money. There was some support. And if you're lucky enough to slide into that support and some of that prize money, 
you might just get by. Um, and as a result of those sort of support and mechanisms going on, Quicksilver came and uh, sponsored me uh, and Rip Curl sponsored me. Uh, there was Morningstar Surfboard. So I had three sponsors at the time who were giving me a little bit of money. It wasn't enough to live on. But uh, then I was working as a, uh, a panel beater. Were you a good panel beater? Oh, look, I, I, you know, I was, I really just wanted to do the best job I possibly could do. But that, that was a funny industry to be in because if you, it, it, it wasn't about doing the best job back then. Right. You know, it was about sort of, you know, wheeling and dealing the situation. I, I saw some pretty bad things go on and I... <laughs> I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know the world was quite like that. As in uh, shonky. Yeah, really bad stuff going on uh, in the in the panel shops back in Arabine. Then back in the day, I was like, God, really? So you're telling this lady that you're going to do this, or this person you're going to do this, but we're going to do that. Okay. You know? So a lot of that sort of thing. And I got a big um, education in what I didn't want to do. You know, what I didn't want to become and so huh. that that was a really big one for me i was just going i can't i've just got to get out of here and do what i love doing and 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 thankfully and that's why i took this job is because uh one of the brothers who owned the business the panel uh, beating business the panel beating business he he allowed me to go and do competitions okay for a week at a time if there was an event uh, and also allowed me to go surfing during lunchtime uh, breaks to practice. So I was doing, you know, the lunchtime surf, the evening surf, hopefully the morning surf session and surfing all weekend. So I was like, uh, that's how I'd, I'd work my, my program. But <laughs> there wasn't, no one really knew what they were doing as far as training for surfing other than just surfing. Uh, and that was it. Mm. There's so much with your story to get through that mm. I'm going to have to gloss over certain mm-hmm. things. You're a, two, yeah. you're a two-time world surfing champion. Mm. Firstly, today, what does that mean when you walk in a room and they say, here he is, ladies and gentlemen, two-time champion of the world, mm. Dom Carroll. Mm. It's making you smile now, which is cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ah, oh, it's, uh, it's a pretty good feeling, like, knowing that I've, you know, that I've, been able to achieve those two world titles. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it was quite some time ago now. And 83, 84? Yeah. And it's wonderful to achieve the top of whatever you're doing. I think all that hard work, that confirmation of all the hard work allows your nervous system and all that kind of, you take on a different posture uh, on life. And... There's also another expectation that underlies everything else you'd start to do, and that is that, you know, I've got to be... I've got to do this at a certain level now. A pressure-fueled expectation? Yeah, uh, yeah. So that comes along and can be a hampering... can hamper you, you know, your efforts in doing new things. Be, uh, being at the top of the mountain, mm. is it everything it's cracked up to be? Once you get there, mm. like you've, you've grown up here as a grommet and mm. I don't know if you thought you were going to get to the top, but when you get to the top, is it everything you hope it will be? It's very different than what you think it's going to be. Uh, for me, it's... Well, I, I actually... I, I did... I didn't even know I was going to be able to get there to start off with. It, it wasn't towards 
when I got close enough to it that I could sniff it that I really believed that I could do it. Uh-huh. It wasn't like I was going from the beginning thinking, oh, I'm going to be there someday. I wasn't like one of those sort of people who had this clarity of vision from the start. It was sort of like little steps along the way that kind of that I grabbed onto and gripped onto opportunity as I, as I moved through and slipped down built it back up, slipped back down, built it back up. So finally getting to the top and then all of a sudden getting all this attention, uh, sometimes that gets tricky. I think uh, our ego does some pretty wacko things at that point. I think we've got to be very, uh, you know, I think having good friends around, having good people around, keep us grounded and, and also sort of being able to relax in it, being able to relax in that, sense of uh of achievement is is lovely I, I think that's that's pretty cool um but yeah there's been moments for sure where uh you know it's great that there's more competition to come and there's more opportunity uh to kind of be leveled down leveled back or you know actually redeem yourself okay. or you know and and those opportunities came but i I came really closer to Third World Child in 1988 and that was lost due to uh, interference uh, technicality. Uh, Which they then changed the rules, didn't they? And then they they changed the rules just very shortly after that. So for those that don't know, interference, Mm. someone else has priority, Mm. you shape in your situation, nothing more shape to catch a wave. Mm. The other guy goes into a closeout, Mm. all of a sudden you can't be world champion. Does that still... I'm sure it hurt you then, and I don't know how you reacted then, but now, was it 30 years later, yeah, Tom? Yeah, yeah. Are you the type of bloke that you're still like, ah, or is it like something that happened 30 years ago? It really depends, you know. Like, it depends in the cir- circumstances. Internally, it's like uh, like I might be sensitive some days more than others, mm-hmm. so it's just some sort of lingering um, residue of memory that will sometimes be a little bit more painful than other times. And, and, and memory, I guess, now I understand, memory just sort of is, is restored. If you memorise an event or something comes to your memory now, it's stored as context, as how you are now. Hmm. And so that's an interesting thing because sometimes I'm totally at peace with it and I don't really have any issue. And then all of a sudden, like, say... A few years now, like now, totally, please, no worries. But in a couple of years, I might be in a different space. Someone brings it back up, and I might be like, "Holy shit!" You know, like, <laughs> and I just, I don't want to start punching someone. Well, it's like, and so let's move on. I don't want you yeah, start laying no, in here when you're no, thinking about no, it. No, I just don't think I'm like that. But you know what I mean? Yeah, I do. That that's that's just the nature of us. That's the human experience. How did you deal with? Um, they often say you learn more from defeat. I've learned that talking to so many athletes. Mm. How, how did you deal with defeat and getting beaten mm. in situations like that? How, how did you use it? Did you use it? Uh, well, that one in particular was was quite a deep experience and I didn't really give it recognition straight away uh, other than the fact that I beat the shit out of my steering wheel in my rental car in the back streets of the Kainui road behind pipeline there now we're and getting I, to the crux yeah, of the situation I, I, yeah i just got started you know punching the hell out of the 
steering wheel. I had to physically get it out of me. I was just like crazy after that. Yeah. And uh, to, I couldn't hold it in. And and I kind of hurt my hands against the steering wheel. I remember beating it up and just being so angry. And But then, you know, I tried to stay with the tour the next year. I just couldn't get out of the heat. Okay. I just was not there. And it wasn't until, and I thought to myself somewhere in me, I thought, well, you know what? I'll have a, I'm stepping off this tour. I took six months off and just, you know, I did all these changes in my life. I just, you know, just changed everything. I got rid of my manager. I, you know, I, I separated from my partner and, uh, and then I changed a whole lot of things and I thought that might work but didn't. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm, you know I'm drastic just, measures when they don't still, work. They didn't really work. I was still left for myself, just going, oh, I'm just boiling still inside. And um, <laughs> and I just had to really fall apart. I just I just really had to fall apart. I put a lot good, solid three-year effort in to get back my world championship form, and I really fell in form in that year. And uh, to lose it under those circumstances was quite painful, and I didn't really give that recognition um, at that point when I fell apart, I remember I was at home in Newport and I'm going, right, I'm just going to focus on the events that I really love and I'm going to go for the win. And and subsequently I got two more Poplar Masters. I got, uh, you know, events at Margaret River and uh, it, it, wins came from those places which I really loved being in and mm-hmm. my performance levels kind of kept rising. They weren't... But... Uh, to put that effort over a 12-month period in all conditions, it it wasn't there. And I didn't realise that I'd made that decision that I didn't trust competition uh, surfing um, at some core level. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I wasn't ready to put in at every every venue and, uh, and go for that world title again. I just didn't trust that process anymore. Just simply because of that, um, at some point I didn't give that fully full recognition that year in '98. I didn't find that out until some 10, 12 years later when I watched my brother uh, Nick uh, in an interview in a produ- in a, a biogra- biographical um, documentary mm-hmm. on myself, uh, where my brother goes, I think Tom lost trust in competition and, and you know i never really found that trust uh, okay. again you know uh so something happened to me in that point and that was 12 years later and that point a light went on when he said that in this interview and I've, i was watching it i'll never forget watching it on tv i was well it was on a was just a record pre-record i was just um looking at a video and right. and watching it and i was going wow nick you hit the nail on the head <laughs> that's what was going on for me uh, so I couldn't observe I, – I can't observe those sort of things within me. I need someone else to help me observe those things such as, a, you know, obviously we have great coaches in this, in this world and that's what they're there for. Um, and at that point, I, I, it took me 12 years to, to have that kind of come to life. Right. Yeah. You, you mentioned the Pipe Masters and mm. a three-time mm. Pipe Masters winner, which is mm. – and I'm no expert, but – people say that you redefine the way people surf that wave mm. um back in your day it was all fluoro massive boards and mm. you had your helmet on mm. your first pipe masters we've been lucky enough to have mick fanning on this show and he talked about uh, the death of his 
brother, Sean, mm. um, and what that meant to him. And then we had a few years ago that his, uh, his older brother passed away mm. as well mm. and he had to go and surf in that situation. And it, mm. it took me back to what happened with you, with, with your first mm. Pipe Masters in 1987, Tom. Yeah. Yeah, when I... I think the... Um, yeah, with my sister, when I lost my sister... She, she died in a motor accident? Yeah, motor car accident, and it was so instant. You know, when we lose someone instantly like that, um, the shock waves are, kind of reverberate mm. for a long time after it. They don't... just doesn't sort of... Uh, and, and, and what we do with it at that point, I'm, I'm not sure. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> everyone's so individual on that one. And my experience on that, uh, that day when I, you know, I talked to my father on the phone uh, before the event. And Is that how you found out? Well, I, I found out from my brother told me. Jeez. And he told me and he gave me the news and, you know, at first I was super angry. I don't know where that came from. I was just, just so angry, you know. And, um, and then after that I rang up my father and I said, oh, look, I'm coming home. You know, he said, no, Tom, I think, you know, stay in Hawaii and, um, you know, you've got the Pipeline Masters coming, you know, could be held tomorrow and uh, and I think, you know, Joe would like you to be there to compete in that. That's your sister. do the best you can, yeah. And, and uh, when he said that, I thought, oh, I better stay here for Joe, you know. And um, so that's what came about. The next day, I, I literally, the, we'd had a lot of rain that winter and there wasn't much surf. And literally the next day, there was this beautiful new swell. There was a lot of brown water from the rain. The rain. And, but this beautiful new west swell. We hadn't had a decent swell this whole time we'd been there and it'd been quite stormy. And uh, that day went by without a hitch it just I just clicked into this space well you know when you lose someone like that that close and that was such such a profound moment that we everything all the all the trivial stuff all that little bits of stuff that doesn't really mean anything strips away so you're left with this really clear kind of um space to work with um in your mind in both in the mind uh, and it seems to emanate out. Okay. Um, and it's... I was calm. I was focused. I could... I just could not do a thing wrong. It just... <laughs> it was an extraordinary day. Uh, the focus was for me to win it for Joe, as my father mentioned on the phone the night, night before. And... And so, you know, when we're going for someone bigger than us, something bigger than us, the possibilities are extraordinary. Like, there's no doubt about it. When we're just going for ourselves, <laughs> kind of limited. And then that was a huge example of that for me. It, it, it made uh, for an incredibly rich experience. And that's what I think when we were talking about Mick Fanning just a moment ago, I've watched Mick Fanning over the years and... As his challenges and losses came, uh, his he reached deeper, mm. and as we reach deeper, we get a richer 
um, feel for what we're doing and and amazing things come as a result of that. I think there's that is um, you know we reach deep and yeah, we get to reach deeper inside ourselves. Yeah. And don't worry, don't worry, that is not the end of Tom. We are only halfway through his story. Please continue listening to Tom Carroll on episode 68, part B. Go on, do it. Listener.